Welcome back. We are in our fifth session addressing the theological issues dividing Islam and Christianity. And we are continuing our discussion on the doctrine of the Trinity. In the previous sessions, we talked about the various Muslim objections to the Christian view of God. We briefly looked at the philosophical, theological, historical objections, and we are making some brief comments addressing some of these challenges and misunderstandings. We said that when Islam ch ch challenge, challenges the Christian faith with logical contradiction about the doctrine of the Trinity, that that's not the case. I can tell you, I am a father, and I'm not a father, and that's a contradiction. But I can tell you, I am a father, and I am a son. In relationship to my child, I am his father. In relationship to my own father, I am his son. That's what we said. The law of non-contradiction says one thing cannot be itself and not itself at the same time and in the same meaning or in the same sense. So we are saying God is one in regard to one aspect and God is three in regard to another aspect and that's not a contradiction. Then the, on the issue of religious language, of how can we say God is, you know, father and son are, are both co-eternal, that doesn't make sense because father must come before son. We responded by saying that the reality of our human finiteness and the mystery of God's demands that we are, determines that we are limited in how we can talk about God. And by the way, these are not just challenges from Islam. These controversies, some of them go back to the early centuries of the church itself. This is exactly the kind of argument Arius had against Orthodox Christians at the Council of Nicaea, that by definition, Father must come before the Son, so Jesus could not be eternal with the Father. But we said that, no, we don't say Father and Son in the exact same way we mean it in human relationships, but we have to use terms to talk about a spiritual reality. I think we have to demand from Muslims the confession that we have to humble ourselves before this God who is beyond us, who is infinite. There is another famous story about Augustine that I love to repeat. As I said in the previous session, Augustine had written a major scholarly work on the Trinity. And uh, there's a story that Augustine one day was walking by the sea. And he saw a little boy that was digging a hole in the sands on the shore. Then he asked the little boy, what are you doing here? And the boy says, I am digging this hole and I want to pour the water of the sea into this hole. And Augustine said, what a foolish thing you're doing here. And the boy says, it's not as foolish as you writing a book trying to put God in it. You are trying to capture God in a book. That's more foolish than me putting the ocean into this hole. When Muslims object to the issue that when we say there are three persons in one God, in one essence, that produces a fourth person and, and a fourth and a plurality, this is what we should say. This part gets a little bit philosophical. Please stay with me. I'll, I'll make it simple. According to Aristotelian logic, and this was accepted by Christian and Muslim theologians, everything is made up of essence. Everything has an essence. And then there are certain things that are in, uh, it's called accidents or accidents. For example, the essence of me is that of a human being. But then my hair color, my eye color, my height, my weight, these are accidents. They don't affect the essence of my humanity. Now, there seems to be a problem with the Christian view of the Trinity 
that they say there is one God, and yet within this one God, and we said that Christians and Muslims agreed that God does not have parts, so there is one God, simplicity of God without parts, and yet Christians say there is this one God in essence, and yet there are these three distinct persons. How, does, how do these fit into that one essence? The distinctions between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, are these in the essence or are they accidents? There was a problem here for Christians because Christians said there are no accidents in God and yet there cannot be different parts in one essence. There seems to be a profound logical dilemma here. For the answer to this, we need to go back to Augustine again. Augustine created a revolution in thought. Augustine said there are relationships in God. Now that, I know none of you guys moved, but that was a revolutionary insight. See, because before Augustine, people thought relationships are accidents. I am, I am an individual person. I can have relationships or I can't have relationships. It doesn't affect my humanity. But Augustine says, no, relationship is not something outside of God or extra to God. Relationship is very much within the very essence of God. Now, let, let me make this more biblical here for you. When the Bible says in 1 John that God is love, you cannot have just love by itself. There is, it's just not possible. When you say love, you automatically must bring certain things into the picture. You must have a lover, you must have a beloved, and you must have the love relationship between the two. So when we say God is love, it means God did not become loving after creation, but that from all eternity there is relationship within God himself. See, see a solitary God must create in order to have relationships. In the eternity past, when God was all by himself, he was a lonely figure. Unless you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, that God has never been a lonely, solitary figure. There has been eternal relationship of love and communication and fellowship within God. Now, I, th th this is the extent of our philosophical discussion right now. As I said, most Muslims uh, do not uh, attempt these philosophical arguments uh, in our modern times but I want you to at least know about them and have some answers to be confident that Christian faith has deep roots in, in rationality. And the final claim, that the historical objection that Jesus never claimed to be God and this, the Trinity is an influence of mystery religions, we will talk about it in later sessions when we talk about the deity of Christ. But I now want to move beyond these objections and our responses. I believe that in our time, if we are honest with ourselves, the talk of God in one essence and three persons, it doesn't touch us deeply. We need to get back to the meaning of the Trinity. We need to get back to the relevance of this central doctrine to our faith and life. We must not just give it lip service and put it on a shelf and not, and, you know, not have anything to do with it in our life. And we, we must acknowledge that after 1,400 years of debates and conversations with Muslims, Muslims today are still as clueless about what we believe as they were 1,400 years ago. 
So how do we communicate in a way that I believe makes better sense to Muslims and makes better sense in our own life? This is where I really want you to pay attention, and this is the heart of my uh, presentation in this week. Many years ago, as I was thinking about these issues, I thought that a better way to approach the question is this way. We need to, when we talk about the Trinity, we need to talk about the character and identity of God. The doctrine of the Trinity is not a bunch of metaphysical speculations from Greek philosophy. The doctrine of the Trinity, write this down word for word, the doctrine of the Trinity is the summary of the experience of Christians with the one living God. The doctrine of the Trinity is how we have encountered God in the scriptures and in our lives. And if we look at it this way, the doctrine of the Trinity becomes the summary of the gospel. And it has greatest relevance to every aspect of our life and worship. See, the problem with the way we have done theology historically is this. When you read classical systematic theologies, they start talking about the existence of God. Then they start talking about the attributes of God, all the attributes of omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. And after all the discussions about the existence of God and the attributes of God and the works of God, then at the end, there is a chapter on the Trinity. The problem that this creates, it's like Muslims can read our systematic theologies and say, we accept all this part up to this little chapter on the Trinity. We believe there is one God, infinite, creator, omnipotent, omniscient, omniscient, omnipresent. And it feels like we Christians have this added baggage of, you know, bad logic added to, the, you know, to, the, to our theology. You know, it makes it like, you know, Muslims and Jews and Christians can agree on everything except this last part that Christians have added uh, extra. But that's why I believe we need to look at it from a fresh perspective. We need to look at it from the perspective that the doctrine of the Trinity introduces to us the God of the Bible. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, makes this observation. And I use this with Muslims all the time. I ask Muslims to put themselves in the shoes of a Jew living 2,000 years ago in Israel. See, the doctrine of the Trinity started in Israel among the Jewish people. They were devoutly monotheistics. It did not start in India or Egypt or Rome. It started among the most devout worshipers of one God. And C.S. Lewis says, you know, the, the Jewish people had an idea about God. They knew God, one the, God the one God as their creator, as Yahweh, as the father of the people of Israel, a God who is above and beyond. And then a bunch of these Jewish people encounter Christ. And Jesus says, we're going to get into this more, but Jesus says, introduces himself as God in the flesh. They realize that in this person, they are encountering God. And their idea of monotheism was getting stretched in order to accommodate this new data, this new experience. Doctrine of the Trinity is rooted in our encounter with God, not metaphysical speculation. So here in Christ, they are saying, 
the forgiveness of this is the forgiveness of God. His authority is the authority of God. His salvation is the salvation of God, not just another prophet. So here, they knew God as the one above, beyond, transcendent creator God. And now in Christ, this monotheism has to get stretched to accommodate God with us, Emmanuel. And after Jesus leaves, the, the disciples experience the presence of God in their midst and among them. Their monotheism is getting stretched to accommodate new pieces of revelation. They knew God as the transcendent above. They came to know God in Christ as Emmanuel with us. And then they experienced God in them, changing them as God within. One God, the Father Creator, the Son, the Savior, Emmanuel, the Spirit, the Sanctifier among them. It took him several centuries to work out the theological language, but this is the heart of the Trinity, that in one God, we have encountered our Creator, our Savior, our Sanctifier. A God above us, a God with us, and a God in us. This is what the doctrine of the Trinity is attempting to express. And so, the doctrine of the Trinity introduces to us the character and identity of this God. Doctrine of the Trinity is our inadequate way to talk about God, trying to express what we believe about what God is like, how and where God is at work in the world, what God thinks about us, what, what he does for us and promises us. I had a professor who made this comment. Now, of course, this comment can be misunderstood, but please pay attention. He said, Christians do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe in a living God. It's not about a formula. It's not about theology. It's our encounter with the living God. And I think this way of talking about the triune God makes more sense for a Muslim, and it can, it can deepen our own faith and understanding about God. Another theologian puts it this way. The Christian confession of God as triune is a summary description of the witness of scriptures to God's love incarnated in Jesus Christ and experienced and celebrated in the community of faith. Rightly understood, this is not about speculative theology. It is a summary of the message of the gospel. The doctrine of the Trinity is not about how in the eternal Godhead God relates to himself. It's about how God has saved us in Jesus Christ and how he has come to reside in us through his Holy Spirit. So I think this is a better emphasis to have in discussing the doctrine of the Trinity with Muslims. But I want to continue this conversation because the Bible introduces us to God. So I want us to talk about what kind of a God do we encounter in the Bible and what kind of a portrait of God we encounter in the pages of the Koran. That's my... Uh, that's what I will focus on the rest of this hour and then in the next session. Several years ago, I had a debate with a Muslim at a university in Atlanta. And the topic of the debate was the character of God in the Bible and the Quran. And I put together an outline, which is the basis of my presentation. As I was looking at the picture of God in the Bible and the Quran, I put my fingers on five points. And I believe, I'm not claiming that these are exhaustive, this is not all the points that, you know, maybe we need to mention. But I believe these five points form 
the foundational blocks for the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of atonement, and the doctrine of incarnation. The three doctrines where Islam challenges us, the incarnation of Christ, his death on the cross, and the Trinity, have to do with the lack of understanding of the character of God. In my debates with my Muslim friend, I used this analogy. I said, it's no use talking about advanced calculus, advanced uh, mathematics or trigonometry. It's no use to talk about those advanced concepts if we can't agree on simple principles of arithmetic. So instead of getting bogged down in a philosophical discussion on the Trinity, the metaphysics of one essence in three persons, we need to tell the Muslims, let's focus on the character of God. What I'm saying is this. The difference between Islam and Christianity is not ultimately about the doctrine of the Trinity. The difference is about who is God. So let's focus the conversation on something we can agree to disagree. The reasons Muslims reject the Trinity and incarnation and atonement is not because they are philosophically hard to understand. It's because they disagree on who God is and what he is like. I am not an artist, but I use this analogy in my debate. I said, I assume that if an artist immerses himself in the works of a famous artist, if I, for example, really immerse myself in the music of Mozart or in the paintings of Picasso, then when I see a new piece of music or a new painting, I know if this is from that same artist or not. Because I know what Mozart sounds like. I know what he is like. So in the same way, when I listen to the voice of God in the Bible, and then I listen to the voice of the God of the Koran, I say, this is not the same sound. This is not from the same composer. The Koran says it's the same God. A lot of the stories are similar to the stories of the Bible. But ultimately, they portray a different character of God. So I put my fingers on five points where I believe the, port the portrait of God in the Bible is radically different than the portrait of God in the Koran. And it's because of these five areas that Islam can have no room for the doctrine of the Trinity, incarnation, or atonement. So the first point, the knowability of God. Now, again, we're going to get a little philosophical, but I, but I will promise you this is our only philosophical point. The rest will be more biblical. But the nobility of God. We said earlier that in Islam, not only there is an emphasis on the oneness of God, but in the Quran, there are many beautiful names used of God, like Surah 59, verses 22 to 24. We looked at that earlier. And in addition to the names used of God, in the Quran, Islamic theology has used even more names to talk about the 99 beautiful names of God. And Muslim theology has also come up with a list of attributes of God. But this is what we must understand. Very important, please pay attention. Despite all the names of God used in the Quran, in Orthodox Islamic theology, we confront a God who is basically unknowable. These names do not tell us anything about what God is like, but only tell us what he wills. God's actions 
do not reflect God's character in Islamic theology. This is the crux of the problem between Islam and Christianity. Al-Ghazali, the most prominent theologian of Islam, he died in early 12th century. This is what he said. The end result of the knowledge of those who know God is their inability to know him. And their knowledge is in truth that they do not know him. And that it is absolutely impossible for them to know God. The most prominent theologian in the history of Islam claims that no one can know God. According to a scholar on Al-Ghazali, Fadlu Shahadi is the name of the scholar. This is how he summarizes Al-Ghazali's attitude. That because God is a unique kind of being and he is different than anything known to man, it follows that God for Ghazali is utterly unknowable. God has to be unknowable. Not only to the man on the street, but, to the, but even unknowable to the prophets and mystics. The conclusion of Ghazali's theology of Islam, it ends in agnosticism. Now, you might say, well, these were medieval theologians. Today, things are different. Well, listen to the words of another famous 20th century theologian of Islam, Ismail al-Faruqi. He taught religion at Temple University in America. This is a very key quote. Please pay attention. Al-Faruqi writes, God does not reveal himself to anyone in any way. God reveals only his will. This is God's will, and that's all we have. Referring to the Quran. This is God's will, and that's all we have. But Islam does not equate the Quran with the nature or essence of God. It's the word of God, the commandment of God, the will of God. But God does not reveal himself to anyone. Christians talk about the revelation of God himself. The revelation by God and of God. Listen. But that is the great difference between Christianity and Islam. God is transcendent. And once you talk about self-revelation, you compromise the transcendence of God. Now, some of you might be saying, well, we're still not getting what you're trying to say. Islam says God is like behind the curtain. He gives us his commands, but his commands, his actions in history do not tell us about who is this God behind the curtain. There are many names and attributes of God, but they don't tell us anything about who God is. We can just know his commands and his will. In fact, Muslim theologians basically said, we don't know what any of these attributes really mean when we use them of God. The, in fact, there's an Arabic phrase, it, it's Billa Kaif, without knowing how. We don't know how any of these words really convey about the character of God. Sir Norman Anderson, a, a British scholar of Islamic law, made this observation. The beautiful names of God may indeed be beautiful sounds in a Muslim's ear, but remain devoid of any intelligible content. Nothing that God does tell us about who he is. What kind of a God do we encounter in the Bible? The biblical emphasis is on the fact that God, in fact, has revealed himself in redemptive history. 
Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father, Jesus says. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's sight, has made him known. John 17, 3. Prayer, Jesus' prayer. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For God's, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the point I'm trying to make. In Islam, God only reveals his will, but his will, his commands, his actions don't tell us about who he is. From the biblical perspective, God, through his actions in history, is revealing who he is. So if God has revealed himself as our creator and father, if God has saved us through Christ as Emmanuel, God with us, if God in his spirit has come and is dwelling in us, then these actions of God reveal who he is. Alistair McGrath, famous British theologian, makes this comment. God reveals himself. He reveals himself through himself. He reveals himself. Now, uh, McGrath is using Barth, Karl Barth's theology of the Trinity. The point is, it is God who begins the process of revelation. It's through, the, the means of this revelation is God himself. The content of the revelation is God himself. God is the beginner, the process, and the end. The Christian faith operates on this axiom, that God is as God has acted. Ponenberg, famous theologian, makes this comment. As God reveals himself, so he is in his eternal deity. Shirley Guthrie makes this observation. The same God who is God over us as God the Father and Creator, and God with and for us as the incarnate Son, is also God in and among us as God the Holy Spirit. These are true self-expressions of God. It's not just God is acting like this. He's not pretending a role. He's not like wearing a mask in different roles. This is what God is like. Joseph Ratzinger, who is currently the Pope now, he's also a brilliant theologian, writes this. God is as he shows himself. God does not show himself in a way in which he is not. Pay attention to the next sentence. Ratzinger continues, on this assertion rests the Christian relation with God. In it is grounded the doctrine of the Trinity. Indeed, it is the doctrine. I'll repeat the original sentence. 
God is as he shows himself. That's the logic of the Trinity. So when we talk to Muslims, instead of getting caught up in philosophical debates, now, philosophical debates are good if you know what you're talking about, but sometimes they cannot touch our hearts. These are some good questions to ask. Is God knowable? Has God revealed himself or has he only given us his commands? What is the relationship between the actions of God and the very character of God? We can talk to Muslims till we are blue in the face about philosophical points of the Trinity. But we need to bring the conversations down to the basic foundational issues. We believe in the doctrine of the Trinity because this is how we have encountered God. This is how God has acted towards us. And how he has acted reveals who he is. We have encountered the, this God from Genesis through Revelation. And, and in our own experience as Christians, we have encountered the God who has created us. He's transcendent and above us. We have experienced God's salvation in Christ with us, Emmanuel. And we have experienced him changing us from within in our midst. That's why we are compelled to this conclusion that there is one God in essence, but in these three persons, in these three modes, in these three relationships, he has come to save us and love us. The doctrine of the Trinity is the summary of the actions of this God in history. Our time in this session has come to an end. We will continue this conversation in our next hour.